On March 16, 1945, Major Clark B. Robertson sat down to pen a letter to Jane Campbell of Coleman, Prince Edward Island. It probably wasn't the first letter of its kind that he had written, and it likely wouldn't be the last. The letter read, Dear Mrs. Campbell, on behalf of the officers and men of C Company, I wish to express our sympathy to you on the death of your son, P.D. P.D. being Preston's initials, Preston Duncan. P.D. was a wonderful soldier. The men in his section idolized him and would follow him anywhere. He was a wonderful leader. As a man, no one could ask for a cleaner living person. P.D. was killed by a sniper in an attack on the outskirts of Wien, Germany. The attack started off initially with two companies. Each gained their objective, but in between the two positions was a fortified house in which, in which there were still some Germans. P.D.'s platoon was given the task of clearing this house. As the platoon was coming close to the house, a sniper opened up. P.D. was hit in the head and was killed instantly. P.D. is buried in the churchyard in Sonsberg, Germany. He was buried with full military honors. Again, I wish to express our sympathy to you. If there are any questions you would like to ask, please don't hesitate to write. Sincerely, Clark Robertson. Preston Duncan Campbell was several months shy of his 25th birthday when he became one of nearly 300 casualties from the Algonquin Regiment between February 27th and March 10th, 1945. The voice you just heard reading Robertson's letter belongs to Darren MacDonald, Preston's great-nephew. As a relative of a Second World War soldier, Darren has an extensive military background of his own. Born in Canada, he completed his bachelor's degree from the Royal Military College in Kingston, Ontario. After taking up numerous sea postings with ships from different Canadian ports, Darren conducted an exchange with the Royal Australian Navy from 2002 to 2003. During this posting, he served in the Iraq War as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom. He later transferred full-time to Australia, and is presently the commanding officer of the HMAS Toowoomba. But it was while completing his Master's in Military and Defense Studies in 2018 that Darren began to delve more deeply into Second World War operational history and his own great-uncle's story. In this episode of Juno Beach and Beyond, Darren shares his great-uncle Preston Campbell's legacy, and the ways that this one soldier's experiences shed light on the larger logistics of operational warfare. That story, after the music. Canada's war effort is a voluntary effort. The sad thing was, we knew before anyone else when a ship went down. I went home every day and had to lie about my boring job as a typing clerk and always change the subject. If the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Growing up on Prince Edward Island, Darren remembers that a photo of his great-uncle Preston always had a place of honor in his grandmother's home. She was clearly incredibly proud of her late brother, but seemed hesitant to talk about him in too much detail. Darren was left curious about who this man in the photo was and what he had achieved during the war. 
so my father was one of the younger members of that family and they had uh, nine kids eventually. And so I think by the time my dad came along, he was born in 1950, the war had been over for five years. You know, by the time he was at sort of come of age to be, you know, talking about this kind of stuff, you know, the war had passed, people had sort of moved on and, and perhaps he just wasn't that interested in himself. Um, I subsequently come to find out he was, but it just, you know, it just took someone to, to delve into it a little bit to sort of open his mind to it. So my great uncle Preston was sort of revered by the family, but no one could really tell us what he did. And so my curiosity just was never satisfied uh, by the fact that no one in my family had any real idea of what had happened, uh, how he had been killed, where he had fought, uh, who he had fought with, you know, all the sort of things that were of interest to me. Um, and that was just, you know, I guess I just sort of thought I would never know much more about it. Um, and then I suppose many, many years later, um, having having completed my master's in military and strategic studies and I, I really sort of delved back into reading a lot of world war ii history um i started to learn a lot more about what the canadian army had done in northwestern europe in particular and in the italian campaign for that matter um and so it led me to reopen this sort of avenue of inquisition Darren spent his childhood and much of his young adulthood not knowing much about Preston. He had done a little bit of digging around 2008, but by the time he was completing his master's a decade later, a lot more historical documentation about the war had been digitized and made accessible to the public. This opened an opportunity for Darren to learn about his great-uncle's past and find some answers. He began with Preston's service file, then moved on to his unit, the Algonquin Regiment's War Diaries, Soon, he was down a rabbit hole, not only about Preston's life, but the larger military operations that he eventually participated in. So, who was Preston Campbell before the war? I wish I knew more, to be honest, but I, I don't know a whole lot. He was, um, he was the son of a farmer. He was the only son of Jane and Rankin Campbell, uh, who were my father's maternal grandparents. And so... They had two children. They had um, Mary, which was my grandmother, and they had Preston, who was about 10 years younger than Mary. And so as the only boy, he was expected to just take over the farm. Uh, and indeed, you know, his schooling, I think, really suffered. I think he started school quite late and eventually he only ended up finishing year four. You know, grade four was as far as he went. And by that point, he was already 13 years old. Uh, and I think his dad said, right, that's enough for you. Back to the farm. And so one of the one of the lingering stories, um, which I, I've not really been able to verify, but there was, there's probably a shred of truth to it, was that um, one of Preston's desires for joining the army eventually when war broke out was just to get away from the farm because it's all he had never ever known. So like many others of his generation, you know, thought, won't this just be a grand adventure? But finding Preston's service file threw this suspicion that he had joined up to get away from the farm into question. Preston enlisted on October 30th, 1941, when he was 21 years old. Now, if he had been desperately eager to get away from the family farm, he would have been old enough to do so as soon as the war broke out. Instead, he waited roughly two years. 
Sure. And this was, to me, one of the great answers to my boyhood questions was discovering how he actually enlisted. And, th and that came about, the, the way I was able to finally find this information was through um, Ancestry.ca. I was able to get hold of his, his, um, his service records. And through painstakingly kind of piecing it together, you sort of end up with this chronology of his, of his service life. But it, there's still a lot of deep research that you have to do into it because there's all kinds of acronyms and jargon that is just not, you know, you have to sort of go, well, what is this? And Google search various acronyms that you end up going, oh my God, okay, that's what that is. Um, but uh, but the sort of very first piece and the most important piece of the puzzle was, was his enlistment paperwork. Um, and he enlisted on uh, the 30th of October, 1941, but it was as a result of um, the National Resources Mobilization Act. Now, this was something that, for me, was a bit of a, a revelation. So, for a couple of reasons, um, one that he didn't just wander off and join the army; he was a conscript, and and that has a profound difference in context to the story that I'd sort of always been told. You know, the old wives' tale that yeah, he just wanted to get away from the farm, which may have been true, but it was it was 1941 by this point, you know. Uh, the war had already been going on for over two years. So, and he was 21 years old by this point. So, if he had wanted to enlist, could have done it two years earlier without any problem when the war initially broke out because he was born in 1920. So, he was of the, you know, right at that age. So, when the war broke out, he was 19 years old. By this point, he's 21 and he's, he's a conscript. Uh, and the National Resources Mobilization Act was something that I didn't know a lot about. And I had a degree in military history and political studies. And, um, graduated from the Royal Military College of Kingston, Ontario. You would think that this would be something that someone like myself with my education background would know a lot about. I knew conscription existed during the Second World War, but I didn't realize, I guess, the mechanism by how that took place. And so just seeing that paperwork and then doing my research on, okay, well, what was this act? What did it actually involve? Um, just really opened my eyes to, wow, this, what was really going on? So the truth about Preston's enlistment likely lies somewhere in the middle. He very well could have been tired of farm life and interested in joining the war effort as a soldier, but ultimately, he was conscripted into service through the National Resources Mobilization Act of 1940. To understand the National Resources Mobilization Act, or the NRMA, it's first important to have a general sense of the state of war in 1940. In April of that year, Germany attacked Norway and Denmark, the latter of which surrendered on April 9th. In May, Germany invaded and forced the surrender of France, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and Belgium in quick succession. Norway eventually surrendered in June. This left the British Empire to fight largely on its own against Germany in Western Europe. There was a very real concern that Great Britain could become vulnerable to a German invasion, and this concern was made much more legitimate when Germany began large-scale aerial attacks on Great Britain in July, ultimately beginning the Battle of Britain. So in very simplified terms, the pressure was on for other countries in the British Empire to ensure they were contributing to the support of Great Britain and the ultimate liberation of occupied countries. Canada felt the need to do its part. But the scars of conscription from the First World War rested heavily on the country, and when the Second World War broke out in 1939, Prime Minister Mackenzie King promised not to enact overseas conscription again. 
And by 1940, Prime Minister King had to weigh this promise against the public's desire to contribute to the war effort and the pressure from Great Britain and the Soviet Union. So on June 21st, 1940, Parliament passed the National Resources Mobilization Act. Effectively, the NRMA allowed the government to requisition the property and services of Canadians for home defense. Canadians could be conscripted to serve on the home front. So the NRMA is this conscription process, but anyone who's conscripted under it is not forced to do service overseas. They basically do their, um, what initially was four weeks of training, eventually grew to four months of training. And then they just serve in a home, a home defense unit, or they go, go back to civilian life, even if there's no unit for them, but they're not obliged to serve overseas. Uh, and so that's how, that's how Preston was, um, ended up in a military outfit. How did learning that Preston was technically conscripted change your boyhood understanding of his story? Yeah, fundamentally changed my understanding of his story um, and and many others. And this has been, I think, for me, one of the great um, aspects of this research is that through one man's story, I've uncovered so much about how the army was organized, how it was fed, how rations worked, like how the pay system worked. but also at the sort of grand strategic level, what were some of the political decisions that were being made and how it played down right to the very bottom level of an individual soldier. So his story is one of you know, millions that would have been very similar, but it fundamentally changed my outlook on and, and started to open up my understanding of how this came about, how he ends up serving in a military unit from Northern Ontario eventually, even though he's a, you know, uh, a farmer from Western Prince Edward Island. But it, yeah, it's it's absolutely a critical piece of the story and and understanding how that mobilization worked as well. So um, that's the kind of stuff that I don't think sort of contemporary um, military history focuses on a lot. We tend, and, and, and my experience going to my education at the Royal Military College was very much like this. It was either focused at the grand strategic level of decisions being made by cabinet in Ottawa, or it was focused at the ultra tactical level about, you know, certain rifles or certain pieces of equipment that were made in Canada or, you know, and how they changed the war. The bits in between logistics, mobilization, how the army was organized, how the Navy was building ships, where did it all come from? It's because sometimes I think in our you know, very much on the surface of our history understanding. It's like, you know, someone waves waves their hand and then magic happens and suddenly we have a Navy and suddenly we have an army. But understanding how that was, how the building blocks actually put it all together is was a fascinating journey for me to, to sort of pull the layers off that. Um, but it also, I think, really helps to understand that individual story at the same time as that individual story helps you understand you know, the broader themes of, of mobilization, of, of putting an army together, of the politics that were going on at the same time and, and how that all interplays with each other. Preston began his basic training course on November 1st, 1941, at Number 62 Canadian Army Basic Training Centre in the converted Beach Grove Inn in Charlottetown, PEI. But shortly after his training started, Preston became very ill with a respiratory disease. He spent a month in hospital and was granted sick leave after that. 
And as a result of his illness, it took Preston 194 days total to complete the necessary 44 days of basic training. After finally completing his training requirements, Preston was allocated home defense duties as a gunner in the Royal Canadian Artillery. So what would his responsibilities have been during his time as a gunner? Um, it's, it's not entirely clear, although I think, again, if you think about the, the fear of the time was this invasion fear, right? Um, so whether that was the, you know, the UK, the British Isles, or because um, the Battle of the Atlantic is raging as well, and there's ships being sunk off Halifax Harbor, no one really knows to what extent I think the war is going to start to encroach upon Canada's East Coast. And so he gets posted to uh, the 21st uh, Anti-Aircraft Regiment as a gunner um, after finishing all of his uh, anti-aircraft training, which comes after basic training. Uh, And he serves there for a little while, based out of Shearwater or out of Halifax. And then he's in Aldershot in Nova Scotia up in the Annapolis Valley for a little while. In each of those places, serving in different units and different um, doing different bits of training for in the home army uh, or the Canadian army at home, which is what, what it was called, very distinct from the Canadian army overseas. Uh, and then at one point, he moves to the 21st Anti-Aircraft Regiment, which is based in New Brunswick. But he gets posted to this little battery uh, that works out of an airfield in Moncton, New Brunswick, where the uh, Commonwealth Air Training Plan is busy training pilots to funnel into the Battle of Britain, which is, of course, raging at this time as well. So it's all of this stuff is playing together. And it's a uh, it's a really, you know, just seeing that it's a, it's like this little slice of, oh, yeah, OK, well, you know, we've having been an air cadet as a young fellow, we knew all about the Commonwealth Air Training Plan and how Canada did, you know, played a pretty important role in in producing pilots of high, fairly high caliber to go into the Canadian Air Force, but also into uh, the Royal Australian Air Force and the, the Royal Air Force and, you know, the, basically the British Empire air training system. And again, you know, just those fundamentals of how do, you, how do you establish all this stuff? How do you train all these people? How do you feed them? How do you pay them? It's, it was a really interesting insight. So he does, he's in that little outfit for about six months you know the battle of the atlantic's raging just off the nova scotia newfoundland shoreline and into the saint lawrence itself uh and here in moncton they're training guys to to be ready to defeat that and and you know i I think there was probably an an uh, an element there that um we we need to be ready because again we don't know how how long this is going to go on right off our shores and how you know the German, the U-boat campaign, how uh, intense it was going to get. And so, yeah, it's, it's just, again, another little interesting story. He does that for a little while. By 1943, he's back um, serving in Halifax again in another anti-aircraft uh, platoon or regiment. And then eventually he's, he's had enough of home defense and that's when he signs up. Uh, for active service, and he, he volunteers to go into the, the overseas army. Preston decided to volunteer for active service in 1942. But in truth, there were somewhat limited opportunities to get overseas at the time, so he continued his home defense service while he waited. While serving in New Brunswick in 1943, Preston transferred from the artillery to the infantry corps. This meant he had to complete basic training again as an infantry recruit, 
and it took about a year for him to completely recategorize himself as an infantry soldier. This switch could mean a bunch of things, but in part, Preston could have been growing bored of his home defense duties, and the infantry represented a better chance of getting overseas faster. I think there's probably a couple things, and, and there's very little in the service records to indicate why he makes that decision, but um, I think it just basically probably came down to a couple of things. Money, because they made more money in the active, uh, in the active army overseas. Probably a bit of an adventure. He'd been doing the home defense army now for about two years, bounced around between Aldershot, Halifax, Moncton. You know, it was probably was not a whole lot going on, obviously, because there was no German aircraft to knock out of the skies. Uh, so he's, you know, he's probably just a bit bored and thinks, well, I've done all this training. Why not go serve overseas? But I think also, um, you know, by the time he makes that decision in 1943, you're about to get Canadian divisions fighting uh, with the invasion of Sicily, right? So it's becoming a lot more real um, for the Canadian army at that point. And so, you know, there's probably an aspect of, okay, hey, I can actually get overseas and, and get into some action here now because, you know, for the previous two years, there was no theater for Canadians to be fighting in really, other, unless you were in the Navy or uh, in the Air Force. So for the army sitting at home to, you know, those two years were probably fairly long <laughs> and wait, waiting for something to happen or waiting for the war to end and and neither of those things happened so i think there was probably elements of all of that play that played in his decision it took about six months for preston to get overseas eventually though he departed for england on august 4th 1944 by the time he arrived, the D-Day landings had already taken place, and the fighting through Sicily had largely wrapped up. But there was much more fighting to do, and Preston was situated into a pool of reinforcements who were to be divvied up into different regiments, wherever they were needed. This is one of the other, I suppose, things that you don't normally read about. It doesn't make for exciting reading, but for me it was kind of like, ah, oh, I actually like reading about that, but it's how those reinforcements then get funneled into the various fighting formations to just backfill the casualties because the casualties that, you know, obviously coming out of the Normandy campaign were quite high. Um, and then they had this period of really rapid um, movement and mobility across France as, as France is liberated and the Germans had sort of retreated all the way into Belgium and the Netherlands, which is land that's very easy to defend. Uh, and so Eventually, he gets funneled into one of these units, and it just happens to be the Algonquin Regiment that he gets funneled into. So he's placed as a reinforcement with the Algonquin Regiment, which had already been fighting through France and Belgium for months. From what Darren has been able to uncover in his research, Preston was taken on strength with the regiment on September 13th. That night, the Algonquin Regiment was tasked with being the first battalion to cross the Leopold Canal in Belgium and establish a defensive perimeter. The Algonquin Regiment at this point, uh, with their division, they're part of the 10th Infantry Brigade, which is part of the 4th Canadian Armoured Division. And so that division has a, uh, one brigade of armoured and one brigade of infantry designed to operate um, in a sort of mobile fast attack method. And they find themselves in Belgium trying to get across canals, not the ideal place for tanks to fight. So it's actually, it's almost, and I, this, is, this is one of the things they learn, it's almost a, it's a misuse of, of that fighting formation. But 
the, the place where he joins is at a place called Moorkirk. And that is a little town in Belgium, uh, just to the east of Bruges, which is a famous old medieval city in, uh, in Belgium. And it sits on a canal and the canal is called the Leopold Canal, obviously named for one of the Belgian kings, King Leopold. And that's his first battle. He arrives on the 13th and literally that night they're attacking the Leopold Canal to break into what is known as the Breskin's Pocket, which is the last bit of resistance on the southern flank or the southern bank of the Scheldt River. Um, it's a night attack across what turns out to be a double canal. They haven't really done a whole lot of uh, reconnaissance. Um, so they're not really familiar with the area. They don't really know where the German positions are, and they don't really know how much strength is on the other side that they're going to fight. Um, they get these combat boats that they have to take down into the, into the canal, paddle their way across, then climb up a steep bank on the other side, down a steep bank, across another canal, and then finally into the objective area of Moorkirk. It all starts to go wrong right from the beginning. They're late getting started. Uh, which means the bombardment of artillery that was going to, you know, um, preclude their arrival into the town is already long gone by the time they get across the canals. Uh, they send boats back to pick up the reinforcements for the next battalions to come across. So they're over there on their own and they get isolated. And uh, German, the German soldiers are very, very good defenders. Uh, they're really good at organizing themselves. They're tactically very uh, mission-oriented, so they can quickly refocus from being on the offensive to the defensive. They can organize themselves into little battle groups. It's it's part of their training, part of their doctrine that, that made the German army so formidable. And they just start infiltrating behind the Canadian lines, cut them off from their ability to retreat back. They have a whole long night of fighting, and eventually they have to retreat the next morning. Um, a fascinating little battle because it really is the start of the Breskin's Pocket or the Scheldt campaign. Uh, and it's a disaster, an unmitigated disaster. And that was Preston's first taste of combat. And I can just imagine the, the fear, the terror, the confusion. He doesn't know anybody. He's just arrived as a single recruit. He hasn't trained with these people. And he's thrown into the mix of it at night, bad communications, under artillery fire. Germans getting in behind your lines. It, like, it, it would have been an absolutely hellish night. While conducting research on Preston's story, Darren came across a book called Warpath, the story of the Algonquin Regiment, 1939 to 1945, written by Major G.L. Cassidy of the regiment. Uh, one of the company commanders from the Algonquin Reg Regiment who made it through the war and went back and he stayed in the service, Major Cassidy is his name, uh, but he... He writes this book and he does it really soon after the war. And he also made loads of sketches, little battle maps and um, all through the war. And he kept them. Um, and then he writes this book when he gets back to Canada. Really hard to get a copy of it, but I managed to get a copy um, online and paid a, a sum of money that I don't care to repeat to get my hands on this book. But it, just an absolutely fascinating insight because... It's all so soon after the war, and he's able to retell the stories really easily to the point where he's saying, okay, on the 13th, yeah, we had recruits come in that afternoon, and they were late, and we just had to throw them in there. And so this Preston would have been one of these reinforcements arriving late on the afternoon of the 13th, and I can just imagine a platoon commander or a platoon sergeant just you know, yelling at them, insulting them, you know, calling them names, just trying to scare them into being ready for what was about to come. Uh, and then just throwing them in the line and expecting them to know what to do. 
and it's not too long after that that uh, there's lots of rumors coming back to Canada uh, about the quality of training these reinforcements have gotten before they got there. And so many of them are dying very quickly when they get into the Northwest Theatre. The majority of Canadian reinforcements like Preston arrived in Europe towards the end of 1944 and early 1945 to replace the growing number of casualties. By the time that Preston joined the Algonquin Regiment in Belgium in September 1944, the German army had had time to regroup, taking advantage of the territory to dig in and mount an effective defense. The many canals and rivers that defined the landscape made for effective natural obstacles to hinder the advance of the Allies. These features proved especially difficult for Preston's division, the 4th Canadian Armoured Division. So I, I mentioned Merkirk, and that's the opening campaign of the Shelf Pocket, and then his division, the 4th Division, being an armored division, they, they kind of got, they, they sort of realized, okay, this isn't good country for an armored division to fight in, right? It's, it's got canals everywhere. The, the tanks have to follow the roads because the ground's all too wet and soft. Therefore, they become easy targets. And so the divisional commanders are learning as they're going, right, about how to fight in this kind of country. And so you see that 2nd and 3rd Canadian infantry divisions end up doing most of that fighting through the Scheldt pocket because it's just not suitable for armoured warfare. Um, and then, but the 4th Armoured Division gets kind of given this other job called Operation Suitcase. Most people probably never heard of it. I had never heard of it. Um, but I think it's actually quite interesting. Operation Suitcase was part of the larger Battle of the Scheldt that took place from October 2nd to November 8th, 1944. The Allies needed access to the port of Antwerp, and in order to get there, the Canadians were tasked with clearing the German forces out of the Scheldt. They needed to clear the South Bank, that's the Scheldt pocket. They get that done by about November of 44. The North Bank is a place called the Bevelin Peninsula, and that's still very strongly held by the, by, uh, the German 15th Army, which basically, once they got beaten out of the Breskin's pocket, they just crossed the river and then set up shop on South Bevelin Peninsula, and an island off that called Volkerin. If you're a Netflix subscriber, there was a new movie that produced just a couple of years ago called The Forgotten Battle, which describes the battle to then retake the northern beaches, the northern shoreline of the Scheldt Estuaries. And it's a Dutch movie because it's all in the Netherlands. Uh, and it does it really, really well. But before that could happen, they needed to actually clear the approaches from Antwerp, north from Antwerp, uh, to the entrance to the Bevelin Peninsula, which runs kind of northwest, southeast. And that was Operation Suitcase. It's here that the 4th Armoured Division, which previously had so much trouble navigating the canals and waterways, began to work more successfully. And so the 4th Armoured Division is put into a position where they can use their tanks, they can use mobility, and they start to operate very differently. And they, they basically, rather than having an armoured brigade and an infantry brigade, they actually break the division into two battle groups of ar combined armored and infantry. And this is the start of the Canadian army, I think, really starting to learn how to use armored and infantry together uh, to fight through places north of Antwerp uh, into place uh, a town called bergen op -Zoom, and then into Steenbergen. And once they've gotten to Steenbergen, they, basically the 15th Army is forced to retreat because they've been outflanked. Uh, the battle on Valkyrie Island has gone the way of the Allies, and, and that, part of, that part of the Netherlands is finally cleared of German 15th Army, and they can start to reopen Antwerp. 
uh, and by the 26th of November, the first Allied ship enters the port of Antwerp. And uh, they didn't know that they didn't think they would actually get it done in 1944. That's because of the, the strength of the German fortifications and the German defenses uh, around that part of the Netherlands. So it, it's a really interesting and probably not very well known part of uh, the Canadian Army's history in Northwest Europe. By the time Operation Suitcase ends, winter begins to set in, and the 4th Armored Division has a relatively quiet period, occupying the area around Nijmegen in the Netherlands. That's all supposed to change in January 1945, with Operation Veritable. The plan was to clear the west bank of the Rhine of all German opposition. The operation was meant to begin in January, when tanks could move more easily over the frozen ground. But as a result of delays, the operation was pushed to mid-February. So Operation Veritable has a very has a small Canadian participation in it, uh, but not a lot. It's run by First Canadian Army, no, you know, nominally, but it's actually thirty corps under uh, General Brian Horrocks, one of one of Montgomery's favorite British commanders, uh, who's who's really running that battle. But it doesn't go well, and you know, a battle that was supposed to take five or six days drags on for about you know, 21 days until they finally call a halt to it and go, okay, we need to reset. And the second, you know, sort of follow-on attack is called Operation Blockbuster. And this time the Canadian Army has a really big role to play. And there's a couple of really big set-piece battles in this. Uh, and the first one is to clear what's called the Calcar Ridge. Um, and so 4th Canadian Armour Division, which is the Algonquins Division, they're, they're pretty heavily involved in that. But then the next battle just beyond that is for a place called the Hochwald Gap, which is this really strongly held German position, one of the last really strong German positions on the uh, west bank of the Rhine. And uh, it's important because it has a railroad that runs through it. And General Simons, who is commanding 2nd Canadian Corps, is very keen to capture that railroad because he knows there's not a lot of good roads in this part of Germany. Those that are there are pretty damaged from all the traffic that's been going through. So if he can capture that railroad, it's really going to help them on their final push to the Rhine and across the Rhine. Uh, and so the Algonquin Regiment gets set into there. Um, again, it's another disaster. They get caught up in there. There's forest on either side of this railroad that just, you know, German soldiers and anti-tank guns are able to hide in. And um, so that a, another battle that was supposed to take five days, you know, ends up taking three weeks. But they finally get through there. And then you know, the last town they need to capture is a place called Zanton. But Zanton is a, is a fairly major town, and the bridge goes over the Rhine from Zanton. It's one of the only bridges that's still intact across the Rhine. So it's a really important strategic point for them to capture. Just in front of Zanton, there's a couple of towns. One of them is called Vane, uh, V-E-E-N. And that town is really strongly held by the last remnants of the German forces on this side of the Rhine. And this is the... Um, the German parachute army. So these are paratroopers, they're fanatics, they're really highly trained, uh, they're very good marksmen, and they put up a really strong defense. So um, this is the battle, one of the very first battles that I ever was able to read about that I knew Preston had fought in because it's the one that was in the war diary that sits on the Juno Beaches website. And so what we know is that uh, there was a number of buildings uh, so this becomes more of like urban fighting, even though it's just a fairly small town. Preston's platoon was engaged in this urban fighting. It's at this point that they're given the directions to move forward and clear any remaining German soldiers from one of the nearby buildings. 
As he approached the house, a hidden sniper opened fire, hitting Corporal Preston Campbell in the head and killing him instantly. You know, the attack goes into vain on the 7th of March. Uh, he's killed on the 8th of March. And on the 9th of March, the Germans that were holding that town, before they can be overrun, actually just retreat, and they retreat across the bridge. Um, and Vane is captured the next day, followed by Zanton, and then the Allies are across the Rhine. So he was, you know, within about three days or four days of being, you know, surviving long enough to actually cross the Rhine into the German heartland, but he doesn't quite make it. Preston was initially buried in a churchyard in the nearby town of Salzbeck, Germany. He was later exhumed and transferred to his final resting place in Grosbeck War Cemetery in the Netherlands. In the years and decades after the war ended, nobody from Darren's family had ever had the opportunity to visit Preston's grave. So, when Darren was immigrating to Australia to serve full-time in the Royal Australian Navy, he and his wife took some time to travel through Europe and seek out Preston's final resting place. When you're seeing Preston's grave for the first time, what kind of feelings come up for you? Uh, you can, I'm, I'm sure you can imagine. I mean, you know, I'd been um, a commissioned officer at that point for, you know, 13 years by that point. So I had pretty strong connections to military service. Um, and so, yeah, I guess just emotions of pride, um, thankfulness, um, sadness, because there's, the, just the sheer number of headstones, it's its mind-boggling. And they're all across Europe. You know, this is, Grosbeek is just one of many. And uh, what really struck me, I think, was seeing um, how many of his uh, company and his regiment from the Algonquin Regiment had been killed just in those three days around the Battle of Veen where he was killed. So, you know, they, they took huge casualties in taking that little outpost, but it was such an important... Um, such an important battle overall in in finally defeating uh, defeating the German army on the west bank of the Rhine, um, and played such a pivotal role to finally allow the Allies to get across the Rhine. So you kind of look at it and you go, well, here's one man's story, and this is how it ended. But you know, the story of the rest of his regiment and the rest of his division keeps going. You know, they keep fighting and all through until the end the end of the war in Europe. Um, I, I, it's it's an amazing feeling. I was really glad I did it. And uh, yeah, some really profound emotions that come to mind when, when I think back on it. When Darren began seriously digging into Preston's story in 2018, he wanted to have a place where his great uncle's legacy could live for others to engage with. The project gained weight and focus over the course of numerous COVID-19 pandemic lockdowns, and resulted in an entire website called Corporal Preston Duncan Campbell, his wartime story. On the website, Darren has not only tracked Preston's personal journey through home and active service, but has also delved into the operational history of many of the military engagements Preston was involved in. So just to kind of close out here, I wonder if you could put into words why you undertook this research project. Yeah, sure. Um, well, like I said, for me, it was all about um, a couple of things. One, to to sort of document his life and create, you know, sort of like a virtual memorial to him as as one of the very few members of my extended family to have seen active service in, in the Second World War. 
I think also to educate, you know, like I said, I think, you know, my own education I felt was lacking about how the Canadian army fought, where they fought, how, you know, what important achievements did they make? How did they learn? How did they develop their tactics? Um, who were their commanders? Who did they fight against? Um, all of that information, um, unless you really go looking for it, it's not, it's not really readily available in, in sort of the mass Canadian media that, you know, covers the second world war. And, and I felt like in researching Preston's story, I actually was able to uncover and and learn so much about that broader operational history. And so I wanted to kind of document that as well and make it real and tangible and, and provide, you know, hyperlinks to really interesting web pages and videos and movies and Netflix things and YouTube videos that all kind of help explain that story a little bit better. So for me, it was, yeah, a common combination of those things. And, and like I said, but above all, it was about, documenting and creating this sort of virtual memorial of his life for people in my family who could never answer any of those questions that I wanted answers to when I was, you know, a young boy. Yeah, it's really just satisfied a, a niggling curiosity that's been there for, you know, 20 or 30 years. Many thanks to Darren McDonald for sharing Preston Campbell's story with me. You can learn more about Preston's legacy through Darren's website, which is linked in our show notes. In addition to being a virtual memorial, it's a wealth of operational information and really helped shape this episode. This episode of Juno Beach and Beyond was produced and hosted by me, Louisa Simmons. You can find more episodes of Juno Beach and Beyond at junobeach.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We're on all social media with the handle Juno Beach Center. The Juno Beach Center is Canada's second World War Museum and Cultural Center, located in Normandy, France.